0: Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum.
1: Good morning, all. That that text, of course, is, is one that uh, has given some people some troubles, although it shouldn't at all. It didn't give these folks any problems. They understood it. You, uh, it's not that they didn't understand it. They just didn't want to receive it. So, uh, of course, this sort of a statement would puzzle those who first read it and upset those who were expecting to hear a wonderful message from God, but they heard this statement by Jesus. They'd been talking about eating. Of course, the the, the background of the situation was that that uh, he had fed them fishes and, and loaves of bread, and they had followed him across the sea and around the end of the Sea of Genesaret. They'd followed him so that they could uh, hear more of what he had to say, and they, they wanted to also be fed the... Uh, food that he been, had been providing for them. They felt it was too hard to understand what he was saying. That may be the, the feeling that we have also today. But it, it tells us that uh, many of his disciples turned back after they heard that saying. They turned back and didn't want to follow him any, any longer. Verse 16 says, Many therefore of his disciples when they heard this said, This is a hard saying, who can hear it? Now we, we should not jump to the conclusion that they were thinking cannibalism. That's not what we think and that's not what they were thinking. We, we should give them credit for being as smart as we are at least. Jesus had been talking to them in parables. He'd been talking to them about sowing seed. He'd been talking to them about finding pearls of great price. He'd been, he'd been talking to them in parables so they understood That he was not actually talking about eating his flesh like a cannibal or drinking his blood like a cannibal. That's not what they understood. They understood what we're understanding. And when they understood it, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. They went back, they got what he was saying. All right. At verse uh, 61, this same text, it says When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at this, he said unto them, does this offend you? But I'm saying, does this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? So he's talking about himself and who he was. He said, it is the Spirit that quickens us. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are flesh. and They are life. But there are some of you that believe not for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him and he said therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my father from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him now what he's saying is you have to and somehow you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you are going to live ultimatum No questions about it. He said, I am life. My my flesh is the bread of life. My blood is the blood of life. If you're going to have life, you must partake. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. The hardness of that saying came in the same form that it has today. The same form. He was telling them that they wanted everlasting life, they would have to take Him completely into their lives. They understood that. Okay? And that's what we have to understand. He was telling them, you have to take me into your life. Totally. I have to be there. You know, we get by in our daily lives, most of us, some of us, three meals a day food and drink we understand that to be life we understand if we're cut off from that we're going to starve to death we're going to die of thirst or of hunger thirst first, hunger second we have to eat and we have to drink what Jesus is telling them what we understand is that unless he's totally like that in our spiritual being in ourselves we're not going to live we don't have a life We have to consume Him, as it were, He's telling them. Jesus wanted to be in their life profoundly. And they knew this, and they weren't ready to do it. They went home. They went back. We're not going to do that. They knew what He was saying. We know what He's saying. He's saying, "You you have to consume me. I have to be in your life in such a manner that you've never experienced before. If they took him in, he would be more than an outstanding speaker among them. More. More than that. He would be more than them just running around trying to find him and listen to what he had to say. He was going to be more than that. He would be more than a kindly benefactor that had taken care of their wounded and their sick and their dying. He would be more than that. More than someone that they could bring their friends to that were ailing and their family and say... Help them, please. Help me, please. I'm a caregiver. I've had it. I've got to get the, some, some healing to this person. He'd be more than that. He'd say, You have to take me in your life completely, just like you would your three meals a day. He would be more than a supplier of their needs and desires, more than an inspirational leader. Jesus was acting acting more than that from them he would be the actual source of their lives give them strength, direction and companionship he would be more than a close friend or family member they were not ready for that nope We'll, we'll come listen to you we'll follow you We'll eat some of your loaves and fishes. We'll bring our sick to you. We'll call you up when we need you. But for you to come into our lives that profoundly, nope, we're going home. And they went home, some of His disciples. They would not be able to keep Him at arm's length or simply available when necessary. He wanted to be woven into the very fabric of their lives. They knew that. You know that, don't you? You know that. That's what he was saying. I want to be in the fabric of your life. I want to be in you. I want to be part of you. I want you to be part of me. I don't want I don't want to be distant. I don't want to be held off arm's length. I want you to consume me. I want I want to be with you. They wanted to consult him, not to commit to him. They wanted his mercy, not his presence. They wanted his healing goodness, not his daily guidance. They wanted his wisdom, not his judgment. He was asking too much. It was more than they wanted to commit to him. He wanted more, much more, so they went home. That's the way it was. This is one of those defining moments during his life when the absolute seriousness of his presence confronted his listeners. Have you ever had one of those experiences? Where absolutely you're confronted with the demands of Jesus and you have a decision to be made. Will I or will I not let him in? Let him control me. Be part of me and be a part of Him this is one of those defining moments even some of the disciples said nope I'll come back later and we'll see about it later remember that's what Agrippa said he said when I have a, a more convenient time he told Paul, Paul was preaching the gospel to him. he said when I I've got a more convenient season I'll call for you when I need you I'll let you know when I need you it was a moment of stark reality. It was a time for decision. Have you ever had that moment when you said, well, it's decision time. It's time for me to either commit or to go home. I think that's why the term blood is used here. Now, we're going to get on that word in particular. Now, again, well, I want to remind you of the fact that Jesus wasn't presenting a cannibalistic idea here. He wasn't doing that. They weren't taking it that way. They weren't saying, oh, he's a cannibal. No, they weren't taking that. They are taking it just like we are. Just like what we understand. He was saying, you have to consume me. I have to be in your life. I have to be in the warp and weave of your life. I have got to be there. But he used the term blood. Now, we know something about blood. We know a whole lot about blood. I first first learned a lot about Blood. From the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know what that is? (laughs) They quit publishing in 2012, 28 volumes, that last edition. I think it was the 15th edition. Started out in 1868 with three volumes, ended up 28 volumes. People used to go door to door peddling it. Then you have to have a big place in your house to put it, then a big desk to hold it because it was big volumes. We don't have it anymore. Now we have keyboards. If you want to consult something, you go to the Internet. But the Encyclopedia Britannica told me something about blood. And I'm sure you've learned it, from most of you, from the Internet, some of you from the Encyclopedia, maybe even the Encyclopedia Americana. Anyway, we know that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Isn't that right? That's what, that's what God told Noah. When he got off the ark, he said the, the, the life of, of the animal, the life of the flesh is in the blood. He said, so don't eat it. Don't eat it. And the reason being, basically, was that it would turn into a some of, sort of a form of idolatry because when people understood that the blood provided life, then they would associate that with the life of the individual and would try to inculcate some of that life into themselves by drinking the blood. And so that... Formed a uh, sort of form of idolatry, and that's what they were facing, even in the times of Jesus and the apostles, because they had they had a big convention one time, Acts chapter fifteen, with the church in Jerusalem, and they were they were wondering about the Gentiles who were converted to Jesus, because they had come out of idolatry, and so the Jews were saying, well, these folks don't know anything about blood, so we've got to tell them don't be drinking this stuff. Because the, the Gentile nations, the idolatrous nations, drank the blood in order to imbibe in the spirit of the being that shed the blood, like a bull, and so forth. And so that was their, their idolatry, along with other things. But the church in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, sent down an edict and said, don't, don't be drinking blood. Don't do that. Well, the Israelites knew all along that the life of the individual was in the blood. And I think that's why the term blood is used, why, why Jesus used it in, in addition to his flesh here. Because it has an impact on us. And it has a, has a deep meaning. It's not a gruesome term, it's just a, a meaning that, that we know that human life is in the blood. Now, the, the first human life that was lost was that of, of Abel, remember? Cain killed Abel, his brother. And then uh, he buried him, got him out of sight. And when God confronted Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he told Cain, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. Blood is a very serious concept of our lives, isn't it? It's it's, uh, it's profoundly important to us. From the earliest records of Israel, blood was said to contain life, so that the Israelites knew that it had value. In Leviticus chapter 17, at verse 11, God, talking to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, said, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. So he's saying, the shedding of blood will cover up the guilt that you have because you've been misbehaving. You've been sinning. That's, that's how important the blood was. In verse 12 he said, I, I, Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourns among you eat blood. Now we know that the life is in blood. Like I said before, we we learned that either from a big encyclopedia or we learned it from the internet or we learned it from college or from school that, that life flows within our veins, that blood carries life throughout our body. We have approximately a gallon and a half of the stuff in our bodies, typically and normally. We can lose an appendage, We can lose an arm, you can lose a leg, you can lose, lose an ear, your nose, your fingers, toes, whatever. You can lose that and still survive, and some of the organs you can survive, but you can't lose your blood and survive. And you can't lose much of it and survive. We also know that diseases circulate through our blood. Now that's, that's been a long time coming, but we do know that. We know that that happens to us. And we know that pure blood is indispensable to our health. I believe, for these reasons, that God chose blood as the vehicle by which to cleanse us from moral impurities, from wrongdoings. Not that God desires blood itself for himself as a sacrifice, but that in order to impress us with the seriousness of what our lives are all about, He used blood as that vehicle to transmit that idea to us. Okay. It started out this way. The law governed man's relationship with God and with his neighbor, and it was ratified with blood. For instance, the commandments God first gave to Israel were written in a book. And when that book was presented to Israel, then the blood of an animal was shed... And that blood was sprinkled on the book and on the people to emphasize, to emphasize the importance of what they were doing in their relationship with God. Exodus chapter 21, verse 8 says, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. A life had to be forfeited. Now, please wake up and think about this with me. A life had to be forfeited in order for the person to recognize how serious their relationship with God was. A life had to be forfeited. It was an animal life. That's for sure. God chose, said, here's here's what you do. He said, you take the purest of your flock, the firstborn, first one that comes out of the womb, take the first one, but the firstborn has to be pure. And it has to be best among your herd or flock, and that's what you offer. So that you will impre- be impressed with the seriousness of what you're doing and your life and your relationship with me. It's what God is telling them. Now, how do I get that across? People today, we don't live in an agricultural society, do we? We don't live in a nomadic society. We live in a, in a culture that's kind of immune to situations like this. But you have to think about how these people presented their sacrifices to God. They took the best one they had of the flock, sheep, bullock, whatever it may have been, and the youngest, and the purest, and the prettiest, and the sweetest, and they took it up to the altar and they killed it and spilled the blood because of what they had been doing wrong their sins people in our society don't have that connection to animals anymore or do we? we do we certainly do matter of fact we have a connection with pets and we make little socks for them make little coats for them we put them in little buggies and we carry them down the street we put them on a leash and the leash runs out so that it doesn't hurt them We take them to parks, we coddle them, we pamper them, we take care of them. Now think about carrying one of these up to an altar. The one that cuddled at your feet last night. One that you held in your arms. Taking that baby up to the altar and killing it in order for you to understand how your life is not in harmony with God. Think about that. That's what God had these people do. You have to understand how serious your life is and how important it is. And he chose the vehicle of blood in order to express that. And once a year, they took the very best that they had. The very best they had. And you say, well, you know what? These animals didn't have that connection to these folks. Well, sure it did. Sure it did. I imagine the kids were just like our kids. They would have named that baby. Name that pure little animal. They would have named it and coddled it and cuddled it and so forth and carried it around the best they could. Then they had to take it up to the altar and offer it. Why? Because God wanted... He was bloodthirsty? No. Because He wanted them to understand how serious their life was before Him. How serious sin was. And what kind of damage it can do to your life. That's what He's saying. Exodus chapter 30 verse 10 there was once once a year everybody had to gather and watch him kill the very best that they had in the whole country. It was called the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it on the altar once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. These offerings should have brought the individual to realize The magnitude of sin. That's how important it is. And yet the spilling of animal blood, as serious and necessary as it was to impact the participant's conscience, it was just a symbol of the type of blood that was to be offered on Calvary. The blood of the Lamb of God. Now, we we think about how how impactful it would be if we had to offer our pets as sacrifices just to, just to impress on me that I, I shouldn't have be misbehaved that I shouldn't have spoken an angry word that I shouldn't have kicked the can and cursed that I, I could offer my pet for that to impress me of what kind of person I was now think about it Here you have the Son of God, the purest individual who ever lived on this earth. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. And yet we took Him to the altar and said, here, here's how we feel about sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. See, it was all about the blood of Jesus Christ. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. He's talking about the blood of animals. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14 says, If the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling unclean sanctifies to the pure and firing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know what? You know what happened with Israel? They quit bringing their animals to kill. They quit it. They just didn't do it anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. It hurts too much. That's what happened. It was hurting. It was hurting them financially. It was hurting them personally. It was hurting them in the community. It was hurting them in the eyes of the Gentiles. It was hurting them in every way. It was hurting them in the heart. We're not going to do that anymore that's why it's not being done we're not doing that anymore we quit that but God took his son and said I'm going to do it for you how does that hurt us how does that make us feel well this is the reason for the blood that spilled on those altars to make us aware of the value of the blood of the son of God and the old testament prophets could see that they could see that way off in the distance. They knew what God was going to do and that that offering was going to be made, and it would be blood that we would be offering from our heart. Isaiah 1, verse 11 says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and fat of the fed beast, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Why? Because it wasn't doing any good. People were just offering them. They were insulating themselves. They were saying, they were hardening their hearts. That, that's what Jesus said. He said, they said, this is a hard thing What's hard about it? Well, it's hard because I'm not going to do that anymore. It's hurting me and I don't want that. So I'm going to stop that. But God sent His Son and He sent His Son to be that type of sacrifice. Psalms chapter 40, verse 6 through 9 says, "Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Why didn't He desire it? Why did God say, let's quit this? Let's not do it anymore. Because it wasn't doing any good. It was doing no good whatsoever. It was not working. It was not making the impact it was supposed to be making. It didn't do it. The blood of bulls and of goats and the ash of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. It just didn't get it. It just didn't get it. What would it take to wake up mankind to the fact that sin is serious and damaging and damning to our souls? What will it take? It took the blood of His Son. Sacrifice and offering you would not desire. Then said I, Lo, I come and the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, your law is within my heart. I preach righteousness to the great congregation. I have not refrained my lips. O Lord, you know. That's talking about Jesus. So he came into this world knowing that he was going to have to offer himself on the cross and spill his blood, his own blood. Give his blood. Because God wanted His blood? No, because we needed His blood. We needed that. In burnt offerings and sacrifices you had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Sacrifice and offering and burnt offering and an offering for sin you would not. Neither had pleasure which are offered by then. Why didn't He have any pleasure in them? Because it wasn't working. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. Now Paul wrote it this way. He said in Hebrews 9.14, he said, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There is life-giving power in the blood of Jesus. It sparked in us a feeling it touches us. It makes us understand that we shed the blood of the Son of God because we were wrong and He was right. All His sin comes short of the glory of God, Paul said in Romans 3. We reach Jesus, we reach God through the blood of Jesus being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And that comes about through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus redeems us, Ephesians 1, verse 7. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Sanctifies us, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered outside the gate. It cleanses us. Revelation 1 5 says He's washed us from our sins in His own blood. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, His blood cleanses us from all sin. It brings us near to God. The blood of Jesus does. But now in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.13, you who are sometimes afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. It creates peace. His blood creates peace. It brings peace to us. Having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. Now, let's go back to our text. Let's go back to our text. Jesus said... If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life in you. Now we know what that means, I think. We know what that means. They knew what it meant. They said, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. We're not going to do that. Not going to do that. We're not going all in. How much of Jesus do we want in our lives? Are we all in or all out? Or half in or half out? Do we want him nearby? You know, we live in a culture where we can get up and move across the country. Bonnie and I did that when we first got married. I, I did first, then I went home, got her, and we went back a couple of thousand miles away from home. And you know what? We, we offered a cliché to our parents. We did. We said, well, we're, we're near your telephone. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't work that's not being near anyone telephone call is that how we want to be with Jesus we're just as close to you as a telephone call we're not that far away that's not the same we know it's not the same it took Bonnie and I until we got old and had kids to find that out it's not the same a telephone call is a telephone call but it's not the same the text, now we text each other Okay. we're just as close to the text you want me, text me Well, how much of Jesus do we want? Do we want him just to be accessible when we're in trouble? Is that how close? You know, that's what these people are thinking. If we want Jesus, if we want him, we'll we'll find out where he is in the neighborhood and we'll go see him. We'll visit. We'll visit. We don't want him in our house. We don't want him here. We want him arm's length. If we want him, we know where to find him. If he's accessible, he's accessible. We know where we can come get him. But we don't want him that close. He's just just a phone call away. Today he's just a prayer away. Watch out! If that's where we want him, we want him only when we want to reach out and talk to him in prayer. That's when we want him in our lives. Do we want him like a friend? like a friend. You know what friends are? Well, friends are those kind of folks that when we want them around that's okay. When we don't want them around it's not okay. Right? Get close but not too close. A friend is a person who knows when to be close and when not to be close. Is that how we want Jesus? When to be close? When I want you around. At that times I don't want you around. You see? These people understood what he was saying. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I want in your life totally. That's where I want to be. In your life completely. They said, We're going home. We're going home. We don't want to we don't want, want that much in our life. We don't want him stepping into our lives at inconvenient times. Do we want some of his advice? some of his advice have you heard the word judgmental lately you're being judgmental you're not politically correct is Jesus judgmental Jesus is absolutely judgmental okay what are you going to do are you going to let him into your life or not is he politically correct is he going to say the things that our society wants to be said in the terms our society wants to hear and are we going to be comfortable with that or not do we want to be able to reach him at our convenience I'll let you know Lord when I need you but don't think about me morning noon and night I can I can get by on a slimmer diet of Jesus you know hopefully we're ready by faith to take him into our lives completely hopefully that's the way we are most of these folks didn't feel that way they just said no this is too hard we're going home we'll let you know if we want to see you we'll let you know I don't have to listen to you every day. I don't have to open this book and read about you. I don't have to hear your voice all the time. I don't have to think about you all the time. You're not that much a part of my life. Nope. Go on home. Go on home. I'll be in touch. Hopefully we're not that way. Hopefully we are, as the church, the flesh and blood of Jesus. Hopefully. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation.